probably going to wear First Samuel out before we're through with these meetings. I'd like for you to turn this evening to First Samuel chapter 25. First Samuel chapter 25. We left David this morning in a pretty precarious situation, hiding out in a cave in the hill country of Judah, King Saul trying to hunt him down, seeking to take his life if he can but find him. And he's already been through some pretty dangerous times. Uh, what is it in the words of John Newton? How does he express it in the song, Amazing Grace? Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. And so it was with the life of David. Tonight, we leave behind for a moment his trials, and we look at an event that uh, I don't know if you have paid much attention to this happening here in 1 Samuel 25, but it's his encounter with a couple of people, Nabal and his wife Abigail. 1 Samuel chapter 25, I'd like for us to begin reading in verse 1. Samuel died, and all the Israelites were gathered together and lamented him and buried him in his house at Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose possessions were in Carmel, and the man was very great, and he had three thousand sheep, a thousand goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife Abigail. She was a woman of good understanding and of a beautiful countenance, but the man was curlish and evil in his doings, and he was of the house of Caleb. Well, you notice that in our text we find David yet once again hiding out from Saul. This time, and there's been some events that have taken place, of course, between the last time when we uh, left David, but he's now in a different area. He's no longer in the cave. He's hiding out in the wilderness of Paran. Now, what they called wilderness was wilderness indeed. In fact, what they called good good stuff, we'd call wilderness. Uh, this was barren. This was only a place where sheep and goats could live. There was just nothing out there. And put yourself in David's shoes. He now has an army of some 600 men. Remember, 400 came and joined him in the cave. Now there's been an additional 200 men with him. And I don't know, but it's pretty difficult to feed 600 men when you're in a city with good restaurants, let alone when you're out in the middle of nowhere where there's absolutely nothing. And just feeding your army becomes a very logistical problem, does it not? And so finding provisions for he and his 600 men is a difficult task, and we find him apparently desperately needing food at this particular point in time. Well, our text also introduces us to this man, Nabal. Now, Nabal was a very wealthy man in Carmel. We find he has 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats, and he's right in the midst of shearing his sheep. So we would assume this is sometime in the springtime of the year. We also are introduced to Nabal's wife. Her name is Abigail, and she is introduced to us as a very wise woman and a very beautiful woman, and she's introduced to us as being the, the, the exact opposite of Nabal. He is very crude, uh, very curlish, uh, abusive, and wicked. And she, on the other hand, is the exact opposite of him. They say opposites attract, and it must have in this case. What we find as we read on that David, being in want, needing provisions for his army, sends ten of his young men to Nabal in the midst of his sheep-shearing camp. 
And he sends these ten men to Nabal and instructs them to ask Nabal for a handout. Basically. He's come asking for a gift. And he doesn't have them go just asking for a gift. He also has them going reminding Nabal of a few things. Namely, that the area where David and his men are holed up in, this wilderness area, is the very area where Nabal had had his sheep and his goats out there with his shepherds. That's the area where Nabal ran his sheep. And all the time that they were with those shepherds, David's men had shown them great kindness in watching out after them and in watching out after Nabal's sheep. Now, of course, if they're hungry and you've got 600 men, it would have been a very easy thing just to, why not just take one of those sheep? You know, let's just help ourselves to a meal here. And yet, they could have very easily have done so. The shepherds couldn't have defended the flocks against 600 men. But we find that they hadn't done it. He had watched over those sheep that were navels. He had helped the shepherds whenever they could. And furthermore, he says, as he instructs these young men, look down in verse 8, he says, for we come in a good day. This was a good day to come asking for a handout. I mean, I grew up on a farm, and the time to approach my dad for something was right after he got the cotton harvested in the fall. You know, that's a good time to catch him. The crops are in, his pockets are relatively, never were very full, but relatively full. Uh, the money we were going to have, we had it right then. That's always, if we ever went out and got a new car, it was always right after the harvest in the fall. That's the time to catch a farmer. Well, the time to catch a sheep man is in the spring, right when he's shearing his sheep. That's when his pockets are going to be full. He's going to be in a good mood, if ever he's in a good mood. So they say to him, we've come in a good day. And notice how he ends this in verse 8, the last half. He says, give, I pray thee, whatsoever cometh to thine hand unto thy servants and to thy son, David. Now, I think we see here the character of David exhibited a little bit. He could have come as a king. He could have said, Nabal, here's the facts. I've been anointed the next king of Israel, and I have just instituted my first income tax. <laughs> I'm fixing to tax you some of your sheep and some of your goats. So he could have come as a king, taxing. Or he could have come as a general, taking said, sorry, Nabal, but this is war, and in a time of war, you just have to do some things, and so we, we you know, sorry about it, but we're just going to have to take your sheep to feed my, feed my men. But instead, notice that David approaches Nabal and instructs his servants to go before him simply as their humble as his humble servants. You're, we're simply your servants, Nabal, and, and I'm asking, I'm your, your son, David. Notice how he puts that there. Whatsoever cometh to thine hand, give it unto thy servants and to thy son, David. And so we see that David doesn't come saying, no, this is the way it is. I'm going to take this as mine. Rather, I'm just asking a favor, beseeching you for this mercy. But not without some expectation that he was going to get what he asked for. For after all, they had watched over his flocks for him that whole time they were out there with them. Well, Nabal's response... As we look in verse 10 and verse 11, is a real good study in bad manners. You can hardly pack more insult into two verses than Nabal managed to get into these two verses. 
Notice what he says. First of all, he says, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? Now, he's not saying he doesn't know. My daughter pointed out to me, he obviously knew who David was. He knew he was Jesse's son, right? He knew who he was. But the, the thrust of this is, who does David think he is? Now, the Philistines knew who David was. You remember, they, when he was fled to Gath, as we studied this morning, they say, this is the one of whom they sang in Israel, Saul has slain his thousands, David has slain his tens of thousands. You would have thought that Nabal might have been aware a little bit of a debt that he owed David. After all, it had been David in his victories in the battles that had spared them from the Philistines. David was the war hero. You would have thought he would have had at least a little bit of a sense of obligation to help David. But no, he says, who does David think he is? And then notice the next thing he says. Down in verse 10, the second half, he says, There are many servants nowadays who break away every man from his master. In other words, there's a lot of runaway slaves these days. Is it my job to feed every one of them? So here he accuses David, very falsely I might add, of being nothing but a runaway servant. He says, that's that's what you are, and I, I don't have any obligation to feed runaways. And then finally, he says in verse 11, Shall I then take, notice this, my bread, my water, my flesh, that I have killed for my shears, and give it unto men whom I know not from whence they are? You really expect me to give my stuff to strangers? Now, put your, you know, I don't know about you, but I tend to get in a rather bad mood when I get hungry. My wife is sort of a running joke around our house. She knows when I've been without food too long. I start snapping at everybody and biting everybody's head off, and she starts pushing the food <laughs> towards me. And that, that's amazing how that settles me down. Well, put yourself, here you are, David, and these your army out here in the middle of the wilderness, and you're hungry. And you're getting mean, you know. <laughs> you get into the stage that it's getting critical. And all of a sudden, you've sent these ten men to Nabal's sheep shearing camp, and you've sent them with the expectation that they're going to come back just loaded down with food and provisions. And I'm sure they were sitting around the camp saying, Boy, isn't it going to be wonderful when those boys get back? I wonder what old Nabal's going to send to us. You know, just salivating, sort of like Pavlov's dogs when they heard the sound of those servants coming, just just getting ready to dig in. And then those old boys come back and say, David, you know what that fella said? And they tell David what Nabal has replied. The name Nabal in Hebrew means fool. I don't know if that was a nickname or that was his real name. I, you know, I keep wondering why did they name uh, Eli's grandson Ichabod, you know. <laughs> they must not like him very much or something. Uh, you think about that. Well, why would you name your child Fool? You know, people get different nicknames growing up, and perhaps this was just something that stuck with him. 
But in any case, my friend, the name was well suited to the man. What a fool this guy is. And you talk about stupid. Mabel, when you get through shearing those sheep, you get through. Where are you going to send them? Right back out there in the wilderness where David's got his army. I mean, if there was anybody you were going to want to stay on the good side of, you'd think it'd be David. Right? I um, do computer consultant work for various people, and about a year ago there was an attorney's office up in Madison that contacted me, and I went and talked to them about they were having problems with their computer system. A firm there in town had sold them a bill of goods, really, a system they had paid dearly for that would not do anything that they were wanting done. And they were on the verge, and they couldn't even get the firm. They had been haggling with them. They couldn't even get them to return their phone calls. They were getting absolutely no help whatsoever from the people that sold them the system to the point that they were fixing to file suit against them. And I just thought to myself, listening to that, you know, how stupid can you be? If there's anybody you want to keep happy, it'd be a bunch of lawyers. I mean, what have they got to lose to sue you? <laughs> you know, they sitting around buddy here tonight, you know. What have they got to lose? They'll sue you at the drop of a hat. I mean, you want to keep those people happy. Well, my friend, the same situation is here with Mabel. Of all people that you don't want to offend, it's David when he's got an army out there in your back 40. And you're fixing to send your very sheep out there. But oh boy, those ten servants come back to the camp and they tell David what Nabal has said. And David blows his stack. He says, all right boys, saddle them up. Well, I don't guess he said that, but something like that. Notice what he says down here, verse 13. And David said unto his men, Gird ye on every man his sword. Get them on. Let's go. We're going after him. He says, I, by morning light, I'm gonna, we're gonna, not one of them's gonna be remaining alive. I mean, he loses it. And they saddle up. They leave two, uh, 200 of them here by the, the camp. And he takes 400 men with him. And he heads out for Nabal's sheep shearing camp. And he has fire in his eyes. Now, I think we see here David exhibiting just a little bit of foolishness himself. I want you to notice that in chapter 24, just previous to this chapter, David had been hiding out yet another time in another cave down in Injidi. And Saul had 3,000 men out looking for him. And you remember how Saul had gone into the cave where David and his men were hiding there in the perimeter. And David could have easily gone over and slain Saul. His men tried to talk him into doing that. Looky here, they said. God's delivered your enemy into your hand. Now go kill him. And remember, David said, No, I'll not lift up my hand against the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to touch him. Now here was a man, Saul, who was out to kill David. And David says, "Uh Uh-uh. I'm not going to touch him. And now you're going to blow your stack over a guy who insults you? I mean, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones and all that, but words will never hurt me. And you're going to get all upset because a fellow whose name is Fool? I mean, what do you expect to come out of the mouth of a man whose name is Fool? 
you know, are you sitting around expecting some great wisdom to pour forth from this guy that everybody calls fool? No. I mean, what do you expect out of the mouth of a man named fool but a bunch of foolishness? But oh no. He says, let's go after him. Let's go get him. I think we see quite a warning here. I, I learned something back when I lived up in Wyoming. We were poor as church mice at one point, And I decided that I was going to earn some extra money by being a trapper. I mean, we lived right up where old Jim Bridger wandered around up in the mountains. And we were out on that big ranch and had the run of it. And uh, I took what little money we had and went into Salt Lake City and bought me about a half a dozen traps. And I was going to trap these coyotes and bobcat and all this stuff. I set out my traps. Day after day, I would go and check them. And I never caught anything in those traps except skunks. That's all I ever caught. I could have coyote tracks all the way around it in the snow, and I'd have skunk in it. And day after day, I mean, and you you know, you've got a real problem on your hand when you've got skunk in the trap. I mean, there is no graceful way of getting him out. I mean, you know, it's all downhill from there. Finally, one day, I drove up, and I, before I even got out, I could smell the fact that I had a couple of skunks. I sure enough, had two skunks, and I had had enough. I said, I don't know, skunk skin's got to be worth something, so I skinned those skunks. <laughs> fellow asked me one time, I said, Brother Mark, what are those skunk skins worth? I said, not enough. Not enough. I came home, and I got out of the truck, and my wife hit the front door. said, what is that smell? <laughs> and I mean, for days after that, I'd be standing around talking to somebody, and they'd go, you know, what very humiliating experience. But I learned something the hard way, is if you get into a bunch of dealings with skunks, you're going to wind up smelling like one. And my friend, that's what David's doing right here. Trying to get in a fight with a, with a man named Fool, and you're going to make a fool of yourself. And I think we see here the fact that wickedness is indeed bound up in the heart of man. And the best of us, how feet of clay, if God just lets us go, if God just gives us over to the old sinful impulses in our hearts, there's no telling what we're liable to pull. How inconsistent we suddenly become, just like David, sparing Saul, who's trying to take his life, and going after trying to cut the head off of a man who's uttered a bunch of foolishness. But that's just like us. Suddenly we become so inconsistent. We manage to conquer the giants and then fall before the dwarfs. We dodge the boulders and stumble over the pebble. We manage to swallow the camel and then get choked on a mat. And my friend, I don't care how far you've come in the Christian life, how many trials you've endured. Should God take his hand off you, you're going to fall flat on your face. You're going to make a navel out of yourself. If God but lets you do it. In an instant, you'll sink to the morality of the world around you. You'll react as men do out there in the world. I know some people take comforts in the faults of David. He wasn't a perfect man. We all know his failures. 
Well, my friend, something about it scares me to death. Because if such a giant in the faith as David could make such a fool of himself, what hope is there for somebody like me who's got a little more foolish already that he's working with a little more raw material than David ever had? Indeed, that ought to make us pray as the Lord taught us to pray. Lead us not into temptation. But we find here that Nabal has a servant who has quite a bit more wisdom than Nabal has. This servant at least knows how to add. He had one and one come up with two. He has put it together. And he knows that he's got to do something. And he comes not to Nabal, but he comes to Nabal's wife, Abigail. Look down in verse 14. One of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to salute our master. And he railed on them. But the men were very good unto us. We were not hurt, neither missed we anything as long as we were with them in the field, when we were in the fields. They were a wall unto us, both by night and day, all the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore know and consider what thou wilt do, for evil is determined against our master and against all his household, for he is such a son of Belial that a man cannot speak to him. So you can't talk to him. So I had to come to you. you got to do something. I can put two and two together and come up with the fact that our master has ridiculed a man who's got an army out here in our back 40. And act, act she does. I mean, she gets the mule train ready. She loads them down with 200 loaves of bread, two bottles of wine, five dressed sheep, five measures of corn, a hundred clusters of raisins, two hundred cakes of figs, and she puts them on the mule train and sets out trying to intercept David. Now, David, he just wanted a little food. And I mean, she brings the main course, dessert, and everything else, piles it on the mules, and they take off, trying, you know, they don't know where David is, but just hoping desperately that she will be able to head him off. She knows he's coming, doesn't know from where. And in the providence of God, we see that as David comes over the mountaintop one way, she comes over the mountaintop the other way, and they meet at the bottom before he arrives at the shearing camp. And I want you to notice here how she begins to make intercession for her old foolish husband. I ask you a question. How do you make intercession for a who? Very, very wisely. I want you to notice Abigail's wisdom as she begins to intercede on the behalf of Nabal. First, notice in verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she hastened. She lighted off the ass and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground and fell at his feet and said, Upon me, my Lord. Upon me let this iniquity be, and let thine handmaid, I pray thee, speak in thine audience, and hear the words of thine handmaid. Notice the first thing she asked David is, let me bear the iniquity, the insult of what's gone on. Let that be imputed to me. Now this is one of the marks of mediation, is that until it is imputed to you, you're not going to be able to do anything about it, can you? In other words, as long as David had his eyes on Nabal, Abigail wasn't going to be able to make intercession. But her first step is to say, treat me as if I am the one who has done the wrong. 
deal with me in this matter. And so she stands before David pleading Nabal's case in her own person. Then I want you to also notice that she offers absolutely no excuse. Look at verse 25. Let not my Lord, I pray thee, regard this son of Belial. I always wonder what Bill Gothard said about this passage. You may <laughs> sort of pass, thought pass through my mind. Here she is calling her husband a son of Belial. You know, I don't, don't know exactly what that meant, but I don't think it was very nice. But she says, you know, don't listen to that old son of Belial, even Nabal. He says, she says, for as his name is, so is he. What does his name mean? Fool. That's what he is. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, thine handmaid, saw not the young men of my Lord whom thou didst stand. Notice what she's doing here. She's not trying to minimize in any way whatsoever the fault of her husband. Not trying to minimize it, water it down. She's saying this, yeah, he's a fool. That's what he is. Oftentimes warn warn my wife, don't you ever do this. (laughs) But then notice that she begins to make intercession. And part of the elements of this intercession is that she offers to David what Nabal should have offered. Right? The very things that David was asking for and the things that Nabal should have been willing to give, she gives. But perhaps more important than that, she gives to David not only what he was asking for, but she gives it how Nabal ought to have given it. Now, old Nabal's standing there and insulting these servants of David. She instead comes down and falls on her face before David, doing obeisance to David. Nabal had an insult. For David. She has a blessing for David. Look at this blessing that she says in verse 27. She says, And now this blessing which thine handmaid hath brought unto my Lord, let it be even given unto the young men who follow my Lord. I pray thee, forgive the trespass of thine handmaid. Notice again how she says it's her trespass, my trespass. Okay? For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord fighteth the battles of the Lord. And evil hath not been found in thee all thy days. Yet a man is risen to pursue thee and to seek thy soul. She's talking about King Saul here. But the soul of my Lord, this is beautiful, but the soul of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of life with the Lord thy God. And the souls of thine enemies, them shall he sling out as out of the middle of a slave. The soul of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of life with the Lord. You know, as they traveled in those days, they didn't have pockets and those robes that they wore. And where do you put your possession? You know, where do you put your billfold? Where do you put your money? Well, they'd tie things up in a bundle and they'd carry those precious things next to their heart. And so she's saying, so your life, David, I'm praying, will be bound up in the bundle of life with the Lord, but the lives of your enemies, those he'll sling out as out of the slain. So you see what I'm saying? Nabal had an insult for David. She has a blessing. He insulted him. She bows down and does obeisance to him. And then perhaps the most persuasive argument of all that she uses towards David 
She says down here in verse 30, And it shall come to pass, when the Lord shall have done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning thee, and shall have appointed thee ruler over Israel, that this shall be no grief unto thee, nor offense of heart unto my Lord, either that thou hast shed blood causeless, or that my Lord hath avenged himself. She's saying, David, I don't want you to do anything today that one of these days, when you're on the throne of Israel, when God has performed his promises that he's made with you, that you'll have to look back in sorrow and regret in that day for what you did this day. Make you stop and think, wouldn't it? I don't want you to have to be sorry tomorrow for what you've done today. And that touches his conscience. And I say David here exhibits, as we say, that he has feet of clay just like the rest of us. And yet there's something different about a Christian. Is there not? He has a conscience that can be approached. He has a conscience that can be pricked. He is persuaded. Now, these arguments use these things on a lost man, and a lost man has no use whatsoever for such arguments. But a Christian can be persuaded by such things as these. And so David replies down here in verse 32, he blesses God. He says, I have hearkened, verse 35, I have hearkened to thy voice. I have accepted thy person. He never would have listened to Abel. Had Nabal come and met him, he'd have had his head off his shoulders. But he said, I've hearkened to you. I've accepted your person. Because you see, she's everything, Nabal's not. Right? He's abusive, foolish, she's wise, beautiful. He's insulting. She comes with a blessing. He has an insult and a ridicule. And she comes with the provisions. A blessing for David. She's everything that Nabal's not. And so she's able to make intercession for this fault, for this insult that Nabal has done to David. Well, she comes back home. And we find that Nabal is in the middle of the great big feast. Now keep in mind, this very festive occasion, in the middle of sheep shearing. And he is in the middle of a drunken stupor. He has drunken himself drunk, as we say. And she gets back home, and he's so drunk she doesn't even talk to him. But the next morning, when he finally comes to, she begins to explain to him how close he's come. See, he was ignorant of all of this. He knew nothing of the fact that she had gone and that David's army was marching and that she had gone and intercepted him. And when he heard what had happened, it says down here in verse 37, that his heart died within him and he became as a stone. He had a stroke. One of the commentators said it's sort of like a man coming back from town. And he's riding his horse in the middle of the night. And when he left, he had to cross a bridge across a deep gully or deep ravine. And while he was gone to town and he was just living it up and got good and drunk, a flood came and washed out that bridge. Somebody came along and laid a tube before across 
where that bridge had been. And here he comes on his horse in the middle of his drunken stupor, you know, and just riding along, dark, can't see a thing, and goes right across. And the horse managed to step on that two before all the way across. And he never realizes till he wakes up the next morning and he goes out there and looks and it suddenly dawns on him what has happened the night before. And so it is that when Nabal understood how close he had come to meeting his end, he just can't think. He has a stroke. And ten days later, he dies. And we find then that David comes and approaches Abigail about being his wife and takes her as one of his wives. Interesting story in itself. She says, I'll go with you. I'll wash the feet of your servants. Not much glory in being the wife of a man who's on the run, who's a fugitive, unless you believe he's going to be the next king of Israel. Now, I want to close tonight in thinking about, okay, this is a nice little story, but what does it mean? How can we apply this to our own situation? Sin is depicted to us in various ways and various aspects in Scripture. Sin sometimes is depicted as a debt, right? Puts us in debt to God. We owe God obedience. And when we sin, that's failing to pay God what we owe Him, right? So we're in debt. Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So that's one aspect of sin. You say, well, sin's like a debt. On the other hand, you can say, well, sin, on the other hand, is that which makes us unclean, makes us defiled in the sight of God. And sometimes sin in Scripture is depicted that way. Other times, sin is depicted as that which makes us guilty before God. But here, I think what we're seeing is sin being illustrated to us in yet another way, that sin is folly. Sin is absolute foolishness, stupidity. My friend, it's one thing for a Nabal to insult David, but how much worse is it for mortal man to insult his maker? To shake his fist in the face of his God to dare him. And you say, oh, men don't do that, my friend. Every sin, no matter how slight, no matter how small, has the elements of that in it. It's man saying, I don't care who you are or who you think you are, God. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Who do you think you are to tell me any different? That is at the root of every sin to a lesser or greater degree. Sin is rebellion against the throne rights of Almighty God. Sin is sticking out your tongue at God, daring you to do something about it. And so you might say this is indeed a marvelous study in bad manners as we look at how Nabal has insulted David. But my friend, that's small potatoes compared to how sinners insult the majesty of he who's on that throne. 
When men do despite unto the Spirit of God's grace, God didn't have to send a Savior into this world. He could have just destroyed us all and been done with us. And yet he sent his own son to a cross. And now when men come and proclaim the message of the cross, what do men do? Trample that message in the dust in their mad haste to lay hold of something else to satisfy God. Oh, my friend, what Nabal did to David was small potatoes compared to what sinners do before a holy and a righteous God, their maker, their creator. And my friend, worse than that, we just as drunk as old Nabal. This world has an intoxicating spirit about it. You ever notice that? Possessions, riches, they tend to intoxicate us to where we're not in our right mind anymore. We get drunk on those things. You know, people out there always accuse us Christians of somehow, you know, we've gone out in left field and scattered all our marbles. My friend, no, that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is a man picking up his marbles and coming in from left field. It's left field is where he's been. He's been living in a drunken stupor. Living in a dream world. In an imaginary world. Think of that prodigal son who wound up down there slopping the pigs. And the scripture says when he came to himself. Isn't that a strange statement? Where had he been? <laughs> what do you mean he came to himself? It seemed to indicate that he wasn't really himself before that. And suddenly he came to himself. He came to and he said, this is stupid. I'm going home. And so it is, my friend, that that's what sin does to a man. It puts him into a stupor. He gets drunk on the world and on its riches. We tend to have lost sight of the New Testament teaching that riches is dangerous stuff. We take poison and we've got a skull and crossbones on it. And we handle that very carefully, very diligently. We make sure that it put away where the kids can't get it. But my friend, this green stuff that we've got in our pockets is far more poisonous than whatever you might have sitting in your, in your cabinet. It needs to be handled with care. Money is not the root of all evil, but the love of it is. It's dangerous stuff. Paul called it filthy lucre. I'm just using that as one illustration. We take some of, you know what happens many times to these sports fellas that have hit it big suddenly. They come from nowhere, and you know, they're just ordinary guys. And all of a sudden, put them in the limelight. Put the lights of the media and the cameras upon them. Turn them into a millionaire overnight. And nine times out of ten, it ruins them. <laughs> can stand to be around them. Fine folks till then. You see what I'm saying? There is this intoxicating spirit about this world. And so, my friend, I look back to a day when I, like Nabal, had insulted my God, daring Him to do something about it. And I was in the midst of a drunken stupor. And the day of vengeance, the day in which He was going to settle accounts with me, was marching ever closer closer and closer. 
but there was one who went like Abigail and made intercession for me. One who was bound to me, betrothed to me in covenant mercy, and went and stood before the holy God that I had offended, and interceded for an old drunken fool like Mark Webb. So how did he do it? Very, very wisely. He said, you've heard of the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, greater than Solomon is here. He stood before the God I had offended, just like Abigail stood before David and said, upon me, upon me, let the iniquity be. Deal with me. I'll bear the offense. The obedience that was my duty to offer to my God, He offered in my place. The worship, the adoration that I should have rendered to my God, He gave in my place. You see, you might be saying here tonight, well, what good did it do? I mean, old Mabel still bit the dust, didn't he? <laughs> well, you see, Abigail's reconciliation could only go so far. She was able to reconcile Nabal to David. But Abigail wasn't able to reconcile Nabal to God. And the one who went and stood before God for me was able to do far more than an Abigail. Not only reconciled me as far as man's concerned, but reconciled me to God. And you know why? Because he's everything. I'm not. Everything. Everything I ought to be. He is. I was foolish. He's wise. I was sinful. He's God's righteous servant. I ask you tonight, do you know this one? Are you still going on in your wild career of drunken foolishness like a neighbor? Let's now for a word of prayer. Father, how we thank you for reminding us this evening, even from this event from long ago, of what you have done for us sinners through the blood of Jesus Christ, thy Son. We thank you for who he is and for what he is. We thank you for his willingness to come and intercede on our behalf. To be wed to us in covenant mercy. To bear our sin, our folly, and to pay the price that we might be reconciled to a holy God. Thank you for Jesus. Father, yet we fear that perhaps here this evening, some know him not. Some are still in a drunken stupor. Drunk on the things of this present world. Drunk on the world and its glory. 
its position, its power, its prestige, its riches. Oh, Father, how we pray that you would do that which only you can do. Bring a man to himself. Wake him up. Bring him out of that drunken stupor. That he might see soberly. That he might see the danger that he's under. He might realize that there is a day of reckoning coming. That thou art a wrathful God. And will by no means pass by the guilty. And that he must find a refuge for his soul. And he must find refuge in he whom you sent into this world to be a refuge for sinners. May he flee unto Christ thy Son. May he cast the hope of his soul upon him. May he find reconciliation in his blood. We thank you for our time together. Bless it to our hearts this evening. We ask it in the name of Jesus.